I once had a man say to me that he thought that a church would find a lot of stability in having a permanent location and a building. I hope that the churches of Jesus Christ find stability, but I hope that it is not in such things. The church, wherever it might be located at any particular time, has a common foundation, Jesus Christ, and the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And that doesn't uh, change whether we meet here, there, or anywhere. And that is our foundation and our stability. The promise of our God is... In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And how does God uh, record his name in a place except through uh, the preaching of the apostolic doctrine? So with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and on the foundation of the prophets, let us call upon the name of our Lord and listen to his voice as he speaks to us in his word. Let us pray together. Gracious and merciful Father, we do pray that Thou wouldst, in fulfillment of Thy promise, Come to us now and visit us here in this place. And we do thank thee for thy providence and its instruction to us. For we are reminded that the church consists not in building. But in a people called by thy name. And professing thy holy religion and gospel. We are thy people called by thy name. And we do ask that thou wouldst visit. And having visited us, leave behind your blessing for us. Hear us as we pray unto thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much 
because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. We have been considering the proclamation of the elder to John that Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, the fulfillment of a very long string of prophecies. We have in some ways digressed from our text next week. Lord willing, we will return to Revelation, properly speaking, and its uh, concerns and considerations. But we have been tracing the line of promise. The promise of a son, a savior, was given at the first fall of mankind. The year was about 4004 B.C. or so. The promise to Eve was that she would have a son that would destroy the works of the devil, even while he himself was having his heel bruised. And that... um, A covering would be provided for humanity. You remember at the time that beasts were slain. And clothing was given to Adam and Eve because they had been powerless to cover themselves. This promise of the son certainly did not come down through the line of Cain. It came down through the line of Seth. And certainly funneled into the family of Noah. This promise was going to be fulfilled at all. It was going to be fulfilled in the midst of those eight people who alone survived the flood. After that time, uh, things grow ambiguous again. You would think that the promise would come either through Shem or Japheth, but almost certainly not Ham. It is really not until uh, about 1921 or so B.C., that the promise is then further clarified. A sign is promised to Abraham. The promise of that son uh, doesn't go to Ishmael, but rather to Isaac. And not to Esau, but rather to Jacob. And then we saw and spent a good amount of time considering a further clarification of the promise. It was not going to come through Reuben nor Simeon, nor Levi, who were Leah's first three boys, but rather through Judah. And we begin to learn something more of this son, that he would be a conqueror, and that he would be a king to whom his brethren would submit. And then we were given a time frame that a certain figure by the name of Shiloh As we discussed it, probably meaning the sent one, he would make his appearance before government passed away from Judah, which happened around the year 70 A.D. or so. 
If Shiloh is going to make his appearance, he's going to make his appearance before 70 A.D. And so we spent a good amount of time considering those handful of verses in Genesis chapter 49 because we learned much of Christ to come there. Centuries go by without further clarification. Judah's descendants multiply. In 1042, the promise is narrowed once again. It's not going to be just any family of Judah. It is going to be David's family and the royal line that brings the Messiah. Interestingly enough, in, in Revelation 5.5, 5, this long string of prophecies is organized around two figures, Judah and David. Interestingly enough, you turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's organized in a very similar way, not exactly the same, uh, but it's organized around Abraham and David. And of course, um, Abraham was the great-grandfather of Judah. So in all of this, I, I discern something of a very helpful way of organizing this long succession of prophetic oracles and promises the scripture does so. This morning, we will uh, finish our considerations with Jesus Christ as he has proclaimed the root of David, the fulfillment of the prophecies that had been made to David's line. And we have been doing all of this as a confirmation of our faith. Remember the uh, uh, prophecies and their fulfillment are a miracle of wisdom. And they are so many proofs, both to ourselves and to others, that we have not followed fables, but the religion that has been sent down from heaven. Our considerations this morning come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. If you will turn there with me. If I might say by way of, of digression, and most of you have heard me say it before, the Lord Jesus Christ in the 24th of Luke, after his ascension, or I mean after his resurrection, meets with his disciples, and he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. The language of the, of the text, when it says that he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures in the 45th verse is a comprehensive expression. He wasn't explaining to them one or two messianic texts. He was explaining to them the meaning and import of the scriptures, what we would have called the totality of the Old Testament. And then he goes on to explain to them Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Christ's assertion and teaching concerning the scripture basically had a three-point outline. That Messiah would be crucified, that he would rise again, and that... 
his gospel would be preached to all nations. If you read your Old Testament and didn't get those three points, you didn't read to any good purpose. The problem a lot of students have with this is when they turn to their Old Testament, they find that um, what they might call specifically messianic prophecies uh, seem to be comparatively few. You get a lot of history, you get legal material, uh, you get uh, songs of praise, and they say, well, with what justification would Jesus say that all of this Old Testament had really been about him and about his mission? And what you find is that all of the Old Testament, all of its history, was driving towards him. Some is messianic prophecy, properly speaking, it's foretelling him. The rest of the history is the supporting structure that is moving along towards him. And if you've understood the work that we've done over the past Lord's Day, you're beginning to see it. The first preaching of the gospel in the garden. And then this long history on the way to the fulfillment of that, uh, of that prophecy. That prophecy is further developed. The uh, genealogical succession is confirmed and established, but all of it was driving toward him. The word that they used in seminary was Christotelic. You, you know the word Christocentric, Christ-centered. Christotelic would be Christ as the end of it all, as the purpose of it all, the direction to which everything was moving and going. All of that long history was meant to have its fulfillment and its termination in him and in his work. Along the way, David and the promises made to his family are certainly a very large part of that. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 11. We pick up with the first verse. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, and the weaned child shall put his hand on a cockatrice's den. <coughs> then they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand 
for an ensign of the people, to which shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. I don't know about you, but very much as we saw in Genesis chapter 49, sometimes these prophetic oracles can be difficult to understand. It is always helpful to know something of the context. Isaiah lives before the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrian invasion. If you could remember just a handful of Bible dates, you'll, you'll want to remember the year 722 B.C. That's the year that Samaria fell to the Assyrians and the northern kingdom was devastated. The southern kingdom, you will remember from your Bible history, will survive the Assyrian invasion. Judah will be devastated by uh, the Assyrians, but ultimately Jerusalem will be delivered all during the days of Hezekiah. Samaria falls in 722, but the southern kingdom will continue to contend with the Assyrians for years. Isaiah is speaking uh, concerning this Assyrian invasion before it happens. So this is some number of years before 722. Beginning back at chapter 7, which is the famous prophecy of uh, a son being born to a virgin. So going all the way back to chapter 7, there has been an assurance to the southern kingdom that although judgment is coming to them, there is a promise of survival. Inasmuch as God's promises concerning the Messiah will not fail. Sometimes people have have looked at this and they said, how would this be comforting to the southern kingdom? Messiah is coming is hundreds of years away. So how is it that this would be would be comforting to be uh, have messianic prophecies repeated to them? Simply put, uh, God comforts them by saying the land will certainly survive and so will the Davidic line. How do you know that? Because the prophecies concerning Messiah will not fail. To put it in the language of Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart, nor the rod from between Judah's feet, until Shiloh comes. So even though these things will not be fulfilled for some number of years, their survival is guaranteed by these messianic prophecies. Let us take some time and and look at these uh, handful of verses at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11. And try to see something of this glorious (coughs) prediction concerning Messiah. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Messiah is first described here by his pedigree and his outward condition. Messiah is to come from Jesse. I hope that you recognize this figure, Jesse. Jesse was David's father. It immediately raises a very interesting question. Why is it said here that a rod is going to come out of the stem of Jesse rather than out of David? And understand the relative chronology. In Isaiah's time and at the delivery of this prophecy, 
David has gone from the earth some 200 years and is probably the most famous king that Israel's ever had. And yet, instead of saying a rod shall come out of David, it said that a rod will come out of Jesse. Why? This is probably mentioned, uh, Jesse's probably mentioned instead of David, to highlight that the Messiah is going to be of mean origins. In other words, in spite of the fact that he's coming from the royal line, he is going to be born in a low condition. Very much the way that David was. David's sons are going to be highborn. They are the sons of kings. David is born of Jesse, lowborn, the son of a, uh, of a peasant, as it were. Also notice in confirmation of this, and that this is the, um, that this is the intention, uh, properly speaking, this rod is going to sprout out of the stem or stump of Jesse as if the family had been largely cut off. And in this you do see a remarkable prophecy of the, uh, of the coming of the Messiah. Messiah, although he was born of the royal line, the royal line is fallen. The language of scripture is that David's tent had fallen. The line was uh, still kept up. The genealogical succession was preserved, and yet they were no longer kings. Joseph and Mary are poor. And nobody, when they would look at uh, Joseph the carpenter, would think this is the heir to the throne. And so uh, uh, Jesus is born in a, a low condition, and this is uh, prophesied here. Interestingly enough, this language of the branch from this time forward would become a title of the Messiah. A common one. Uh, I'll just read you, to you a couple of texts. In Jeremiah 23. Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Zechariah chapter 3. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. If you can follow your Bible history, you begin to see that this is a remarkably durable prophecy and title. A son was promised to David. You remember promises were made to David, Second Samuel chapter 7, that his house would not fail. And that there would ever be a man to sit upon his throne. That was 942 B.C. He is called the branch by Isaiah. You might want to associate that in about 750 B.C., so about 200 years later. He is called the branch by Jeremiah. You might want to associate that with about the year 600 or so. And then getting on toward the year 500, Zechariah calls him the branch after the Babylonian captivity. This ends up being a remarkable, uh, a remarkably durable prophecy and even way of referring to Messiah. And interestingly enough, you fast forward to the first century A.D. toward its conclusion. The elder speaks to John and, and calls Jesus Christ the root of David. Uh, remarkable 
and remarkably durable indeed. Verse 2. We have considered in the first verse the Messiah's pedigree and outward condition. Now we consider his spiritual qualifications and endowments. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You will remember that Messiah means the anointed one. Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And it's these spiritual endowments that qualify him for his work. Um, they make him capable of performing it and discharging it. And we see this in our Jesus. You'll remember in the third chapter of John it is said of him. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. John 3.34 Here it is said that uh, the rest of us receive, receive the Holy Spirit in our conversion, but by measure. But the Lord Jesus Christ would receive the Holy Spirit without measure, without any sort of limitation. And having received the fullness of the Spirit, it is said that Messiah will be knowledgeable, that he will be wise. You remember in the second of Colossians, he is called, said to have the fullness of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He is said to have the spirit of counsel, which seems to speak to his prophetic office, his ability to give spiritual counsel and direction. You remember in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we saw Jesus as the great counselor speaking to the churches in their spiritual disorders and giving them counsel how to remedy and to rectify those disorders. You remember, uh, just for example, he talked to the Laodicean Christians and he said that you think of yourselves as being in a good condition, rich and having no needs, but I see you as being wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I counsel you to buy of me gold and white raiment and eye salve and so on. This is Jesus Christ as the great counselor of his church. Here also it is said that he has strength power to do his will and interestingly enough he has um, the spirit of the fear of the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in all of his messianic career has always walked in the perfect fear of his father with a due reverential awe The next section, verses 3 through 5, talks about the, the fruits or the effects of those endowments upon the administration of his government. And it really is quite something to behold. Verse 3. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. 
But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. You remember it was said that he would receive the Holy Spirit and in the fullness of the Spirit he would have knowledge and understanding. Here it is said that he is capable of discerning and distinguishing between those who have the fear of the Lord and those who do not. But he does not make this judgment the way that we do by outward signs and an outward show. Here it's asserted that he is not capable of being fooled by such things. You remember in Revelation chapter 1 we saw Jesus Christ portrayed as having eyes like unto a flame of fire. Eyes that penetrate into the heart of a man and see him the way that he really is. This is that same sort of idea. You think of uh, Jesus Christ in uh, the days of his earthly ministry. And his assessment of the Pharisees. These were reputed and seemed to be the most holy people in the most holy land on the planet. And yet Jesus Christ did not judge them by the seeing of the eye or the hearing of the ear. He looked to the heart of the matter and would say things like, Harlots and publicans are entering into the kingdom of God before you. I is like unto a flame of fire, penetrating right into the heart of a man. Think again of um, Jesus and how he wasn't limited by external assessments. You remember his first interview with Nathaniel, John chapter 1. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. It seems as if Nathaniel knows this prophecy right well. One who judges, but not after the seeing of the eye or the hearing of the ear. Jesus Christ knew him before he ever laid his physical eyes upon him. So Jesus makes this kind of discernment between those who fear the Lord and those who don't. And then in verse 4, the text speaks of his administration toward the righteous and the wicked. He protects and defends the righteous, the righteous poor and meek. And he punishes their enemies with the rod of his mouth, with his word. In verse 5, we see that Jesus Christ is greatly glorified in this, his administration. Uh, his righteousness and faithfulness are likened unto a girdle, probably here intended as an ornament. They are like a glorious uh, belt uh, adorning his midsection, this righteousness and faithfulness in his dealings with men. 
So here we've seen something of the effects of his spiritual endowments upon his government. In verses 6 through 9, we have the glorious fruits of Messiah's government in the world. Verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Raises questions. Some have asked in, in the age to come, does this mean that the animals will be uh, peaceable one with another again? Uh, I, I, I don't think that this is what this text is dealing with at all, although I, I, I would say that uh, with the banishing of sin, no doubt death goes with it, and the animals will be yet at peace with one another again. If there are to be animals in the coming age, these things are hard to determine for sure. But the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the ox here, are almost certainly intended to be men and different kinds of men. You say, well, how do you know that for sure, Pastor? You see in verse 9 when it says that they will not hurt or destroy in God's holy mountain anymore, it said because the knowledge of the Lord will overspread the earth, which is a great help to man, but certainly not to uh, animals. So men appear to be in view here. And the idea in all of this language seems to be that those who were formerly fierce and vicious will be tamed by this great and glorious king and made to live peaceably with those other more peaceable subjects. And interestingly enough, you get this language of wolf and lamb, leopard and kid, calf and lion, and fatling in verse 6, and then it said, and a little child shall lead them, as if the weakest and uh, meanest uh, servant of Jesus Christ Well, all, the great and the strong and the mighty, will willingly submit themselves to such a one. And this little child will lead them. And the reason that all of these subjects are made peaceable is because the knowledge of God has covered the earth the way that waters cover the sea. You do understand how waters cover the sea, right? Completely. And deep. That's the the language here. That the knowledge would overspread the earth and cover it. Deeply and completely. The same way that waters cover a sea. You remember this this does uh, intersect very closely with Psalm 110. These are made subject to God by means of knowledge. That is by means of the ministry of the word. They are brought Uh, under Christ's government, and they are made peaceable and improved 
by this government. You remember it is said in the 110th Psalm that the rod of Christ's power would go out from Zion. The history tells us what that is, that the word would be preached first in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So what is the rod of Messiah's power that begins at Jerusalem and then goes out into the earth by the preaching of his word? And the preaching of his word makes a people willing in the day of his power. It's the very same thing that you have here. The preaching of the word conveys the knowledge of God all over the earth. And then people are made willing in that day of his power. Lion and lamb, ox and wolf, all lie down together in peace. And finally, verse 10. This great, glorious, and unexpected fruit of Messiah's government, the calling of the Gentiles. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Here he is called the root of Jesse once again. But we are told here that the, this knowledge of the Lord will no longer be limited to Palestine and to the Jews. But it will overspread all of the earth. That it will overspread the Gentile land. And it will be as if Messiah himself is lifted up as a banner. That's what this um, language means. The root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. It's very much like on a, a battlefield when a, uh, a king's army was becoming uh, disordered because of the fray. He would lift his banner and they would rally around the banner. Uh, and come back, fall back to the king and be restored to uh, order in this way. It's a, it's a similar sort of image. Messiah is going to be lifted up as a banner and then all of the Gentile nations are going to be drawn in to the banner. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of John? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And this has been fulfilled in our day. It is fulfilled in us. The calling of the Gentiles. An ensign, a cross lifted up on a hill on the other side of the world. And yet the Gentiles have been brought to it from all parts of the earth. And finally it said that the Messiah's rest, his rest or his resting place is glorious. This could mean one of two things. It could either speak of Messiah himself having ascended on high and uh, sitting at the right hand of the fathers. In this way, his rest would be glorious. It could also be a reference to the church, that Messiah's resting place in the church is a glorious resting place. But however we take it, we see all so perfectly Fulfilled in our Jesus and even fulfilled in us, the gathering of the Gentiles. As I said at the beginning, next week we will return to our text in Revelation chapter five and continue with the narrative there. But I thought it was useful to digress for a while so that we might see these 
several proofs of the divinity of our religion, encouraging to anyone who is doubting, whether these be certain sorts of intellectual doubts or struggles or more emotional ones that come to us when we are suffering. Our suffering is not purposeless. It's not in vain. But we are following our Jesus in the way of the cross. And this is no mere invention of ours, but this has been told from ancient times, even from near the creation of the world, that this Jesus would come, that he would suffer and die for his people, delivering them from sin and all of their enemies, that he would be raised again from the dead, showing himself victorious over that last and most terrible enemy, death. That he would ascend on high, leading captivity captive and making an open display of his enemies. That he would sit down at the right hand of his father and rule over his church. And not just his church, but all things for their good. And we see all things perfectly fulfilled in him. And we are evidence of that fulfillment and that the Gentiles. You have, to, you have to understand just how amazing it is that in the 8th century B.C., in the midst of a little people, Israel, not the greatest of peoples, not the strongest of people, a people who were even at that time beset by war and threatened with extinction, you have to understand that if the Assyrians take you away, that's pretty much the end of you as a people that what they would do is they would um, move you away into a distant land and mix you into the midst of another people, and then they would move other people into your land to mix with whatever was left there. And then the peoples would lose their identity and their distinctiveness. In the midst of this, Isaiah says, David's line will continue. A great king will arise in the midst of it. And in spite of the fact that we are poor, despised people on the verge of extinction, this Messiah will be lifted up and he will draw all of the world to himself. And this is fulfilled in our day and in our hearing. Let us pray together.